This is it, the never-before-listened-to episode 10 of the Desert League. Get ready, coming up next. Here we go, episode 10 of the Desert League, getting into double digits. Here it is, Ward Andrews and the North Bureau, Sean Fitzpatrick. The man with the prediction from the South Bureau. <laughs> How you doing, John? I'm doing well. How are you, Ward? It's uh, you know, it's all it's still almost 100 degrees, and we're halfway through the football season. It really feels like fall. Oh man, <laughs> things are heating up. Luckily, the Wildcats and even the Sun Devils are heating up in college football. We'll start right there, Sean. You made a prediction. I think it was forty nine forty five. Is that correct? I think I I I think so. We may have to go back to the tape, as they say in the biz, and check it out um, after after uh, Arizona's double overtime win against. Uh, um, <laughs> and I'm blanking on who we on who we just beat. Um, the Cal Berkeley the, Golden Bears. Exactly the the Cal Golden Bears. Uh, you had you had texted me about the cats, and I kind of somewhat sarcastically um, texted back that I had I had predicted forty nine forty five, which I believe is the case, and I think that was yeah. the the last score. It, but I I never expected it to be in double overtime, so it was a little bit tongue in cheek because we got pretty close to my prediction by virtue of two overtimes, if. Uh, if we'd been able to kind of pull it out in regulation, it definitely, I think it would have actually been a lot closer to your prediction. Yeah. I think mine was 48, 35 or something like that. Yeah. Anyway. You know, they have these, they have these things called pens. I just need to remember to use them on this, <laughs> on this substance called paper when we make these predictions so that we don't have to go digging through old podcasts, but yeah. it was, uh, you know, as we talked about in the last podcast, um, it it was true to form. You know, the last four or five uh, games between Cal and Arizona have been decided by just a couple of points. And once again, um, you know, it, it was a hard-fought game. We had ejections. We had a third-string running back uh, looking like, uh, you know, the, the second coming of, uh, of Walter Payton. And, uh, you know, and we – pulled it out on the road somehow. And that's, that's what winning teams do. Sometimes they win ugly. Yeah, that's true. And you know, uh, Khalil Tate, a couple of things we're learning about this guy. First off in a game time situation, he elevates to another level. Nick Foles was like that. Historically, Nick Foles was terrible in practice or others looked better in practice in a game. People weren't much better than Nick Foles. So here we have it again, where, he didn't even beat out people in camp. You know, it took an injury to Dawkins to get to get him in there in the Colorado game. And then he turned it up a few gears in the running game. But my favorite play of the game in double overtime, we need to score a touchdown. It's like second and seven, 30, 20 or 30 yards out. He's getting chased around, realizes he's not going to be able to take off and then is able to improvise and find the tight end and they score a touchdown. And it's just like, this guy's a gamer. Like he can get it done through the air and get it done through the ground and he's going to get it done. I'm really impressed with what he's been able to do. Yeah. And you touched on a really good facet that has made him even more of a threat. Cause obviously uh, Dawkins definitely is a threat on the ground. But as we talked about early in the season, just couldn't i mean he was either throwing a you know throwing a 100 yard pass when he needed to complete a 10 yard pass or you know he was doing it with his legs and eventually you know everyone just kind of sat back and said you know what we're just going to make sure he can't run anywhere because we know he's not going to make a 15 yard you know 10 15 yard completion and that's that's the x factor for Khalil Tate is being able to do that it's it's kind of interesting to note that you know, he only had one 76-yard touchdown run in this game, 
And, you know, he only ran for, I think, 133 yards. So kind of a letdown over the previous two weeks, I say jokingly, because for any <laughs> other any other quarterback, if you looked at that, it would have been an amazing night. But you look at it and, you know, to a certain extent, Cal felt like, well, you know, we had some success containing him. But if you watch any replay from that game on just about any play, you can see the defense is keyed completely on Khalil Tate. And I thought Rich Rod and Khalil, you know, the whole team did a good job of using that to their advantage you know, as a misdirection. Yeah. That's that's a yeah. big reason that a guy like Zach Green, because, you know, a guy that big, you know, you just need to give him a little bit of daylight. He's just going to bull right through it. And that little bit of hesitation when the defense is going, is, is he going to keep it? That's just – that's enough in this game for, you know, a, a third-string running back who has some power to just, you know, blow up that hole. Yeah, I agree. I – I was amazed. And again, let's give credit to Richrod. He did the recruiting here. He had a third string guy who fits his system, who could get it done in the clutch when it needed. But, you know, you see, you see one QB or one running back go down in Nick Wilson. You see a second running back out with JJ Taylor, even though he made probably the best block of college football this season. And he got robbed with that penalty call for targeting. Um, and then Zach Green comes in and just takes care of business. Oh, yeah. Also, we got to shout out the uh, offensive line. Oh, yeah. Who's just getting it done. They're moving bodies. And if you if you can move bodies in Rich Rod's offense and create holes for people like Zach Green or whomever's back there, along with uh, Khalil Tate, there's some <sighs> rushing yards coming your way. Well, and you hear – you hear in just about every sport, but, you know, especially even in football, that footwork is so important. And it's not necessarily that you've got the biggest guys and they're blowing you off the line. It's that they're, you know, well-conditioned, well-trained, so that they know how to get leverage, know how to position, how to respond, you know, to the, you know, to the defensive line rushing, um, you know, their their pass blocking schemes, et cetera, that they know what they're what the guy beside them is supposed to be doing. And I think that's just a big key is we're starting to see that discipline kick in. But what's interesting is we yeah, you know, Arizona we I'll just use we, I'm not even gonna pretend. Uh we we did benefit from the fact that um Cal decided to go for a two point conversion there. I've never I've never understood, except for in certain situations where you see that a team is just so tapped out that if they have to go another round of overtime, you know that they're just not going to be able to do it. They may as well go for the win. But, you know, the conventional wisdom is, especially at home, you go for the tie, you've got the energy of the crowd, you've got that going for you, you just you just go for the tie, and obviously the third overtime you have to start going for two. But it, it just seems like at a certain point, if you just kind of lose your focus, I don't want to say focus, but you just kind of, you, it's kind of like you blink first if you go for that two-point conversion instead of going for the tie to extend the game. Yeah. You know, the, uh, this is another case, and you said it earlier, this is another case where they were spooked out by Khalil Tate. They didn't really want to go another OT, and the coach for Cal said that after the game. He said, well, we didn't want to, we didn't want to put – Khalil Tate back on the field. So I thought that was interesting. He also had a great play. They had the play drawn up. Like the yeah. receiver was open over the middle, and it took a true freshman making the play of his life coming over the top and deflecting that ball away for us to win. Well, and once, and once again, as we talked about um, last week, it's it's not as important um, – you know, as the recipe for victory that our defense, you know, shuts them down is in the top 10 in the country or anything like that. Our defense gives away, you know, as much as our offense takes, obviously, as, you know, as is evidenced in, in all of the games. But what's been key when you look at it when, it, right, when it comes down to it is somebody on defense 
comes up and makes a play. Even after we've given up hundreds and hundreds of yards and we've let, allowed team back in into the game, when it comes down to the deciding play of the game, somehow the defense comes up and makes a play. And, you know, they say in, in sports a lot of that is you have to really train and condition guys to have, um, you know, just short-term memory. Like when you get burned, you just have to have the ability to not beat yourself up, go back out on the field and say, okay, I'm going to get him the next time. Because yeah. there, there's so many opportunities for the defense to hang their head when, you know, Cal comes storming back from a big deficit. And a lot of defenses would fold. But, you know, I think that's a real credit to uh, the morale and, you know, and just the, the commitment to getting it done and not feeling sorry for themselves. Yeah. Yeah, and look at the result, 5-2, and two, one game from bull eligibility, tied for second in the Pac-12 South race, really in a position where if they run the table, they'll likely win the Pac-12 South. They have a monster game coming on Saturday night, homecoming game at home versus Washington State. You know, this, this is like the redemption tour for Rich Rod. He couldn't get that monkey off his back with UCLA. He has had some trouble with Mike Leach and Washington State. This is the perfect time to get down to business and make something happen against Washington State. Yeah, and I've got to say, I did. Um, I caught some of that um, some of that Washington State game last um, against Colorado last weekend, and. You know, obviously Colorado's not world beaters, but I, I, you know, I didn't see from Washington State, especially on on their home field. Of course, you know there there was some inclement weather. Uh, you know, it's pretty cold and it was raining down there. But I didn't see you know anything that would demonstrate like offensive dominance. Um, and so maybe that's a that's a good sign coming into it. Maybe uh, maybe our defense has a shot to do some containment with their offense. Yeah. I think this comes down to Rich Rod and Khalil Tate's offense versus Washington State's defense, which is supposed to be good against the run. That's going to be the name of the game on Saturday because if Washington State can actually contain Tate on the ground – um, we're going to see some new stuff. Now, I think Rich Rod's prepared for the fact that Khalil may need to win some rounds and score some touchdowns through the air. I've been thinking about this. His touch is awesome, but I just want to see something. I think we will see it this week. I want to see him drop back, look for the open guys, who I think will be there, then either throw that pass or – do something we really haven't seen yet, which I think is a hidden threat. And that is, I think he can take off for big runs in a traditional scramble kind of way that we haven't seen, right? Like we see him off of the, of the run, the read option attack, taking runs. What we really haven't seen is him legitimately dropping back, sizing things up, and then going on a run. I think that's going to be an interesting wrinkle that might surface on yeah, and we have we have seen it a couple times on, you know, a broken pass play where the pocket collapses. And, and in fact, if I'm not mistaken, um, game before last, he, he may have scored, I think he scored one of, his tight, one of his long touchdowns off of a broken play like that. But you're right, it's not, you know, it's not really something that they're doing. It's when, when Tate is running, he's pretty much running. But what, what's interesting is, in football, the whole purpose um, – well, not the whole purpose, but one of the main purposes of a, of a running game is so that you can get into a position to do play action. And this is that, you know, especially college, NFL level, they'll tell you that, you know, you've got to be able to, to fake that handoff and freeze those, uh, those DBs in order to get the passing game. What, what's interesting, in watching Khalil Tate, he's such a rushing threat – that he almost creates his own play action just even when he, uh, when he fakes running himself. <laughs> so yeah. it's, 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 almost, it's almost like you have like two layers of play action because 
he could do a play action with, you know, a Nick Wilson or a Taylor or a Green coming out of the backfield. Uh, but he can also create the same effect by making it look like he is about to go for a run. That that could be the technique that actually allows, you know, allows him uh, some extra time and, and some room in the pocket to, to make some completions. Yep. Yep. And and you got to think there's a few more wrinkles in the offense that uh, they're they, they're holding for a game like this one. This is the kind of game I like Rich Rod in. Um, he's got something to prove. It's at home. We need to have that that win against that ranked team that we get every year. This just feels like this just feels like it's time, and it really will then put us in a sweet position uh, to have a great rest of the season. So big game. Well, it- yeah, and then and then what's interesting is we're in um we're in the odd position A of being tied with our brethren up I ten um with the same conference uh record uh going into this this week's uh, games. We're basically tied in the Southern Division with the Sun Devils. And uh, unless I'm mistaken, I'm pretty sure uh, we've got USC coming to Sun Devil Stadium. Uh, to play them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's going to be a great game. And so one it, that I really like Arizona's chances in. <laughs> well, uh, it, 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 we're in a position where we're actually going to be rooting for the Sun Devils. Because if if, uh, if ASU takes down USC and if we take down Washington State, we basically have a tie atop the Southern Division. Yeah, wouldn't that be awesome if that came down to ASU U of A for the Pac-12 South? I would be fine <laughs> with that matchup. Yeah, that would be pretty amazing. Um, <laughs> cool. But yeah, so uh, go go Devils! And you know, we talked about our surprise season. How about the Sun Devils? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're they're doing some surprising things. Um, let's let's see how it plays out, though. Let's see how it plays out. <laughs> All right. Speaking of, of sports in Phoenix, something that we've got to cover here, uh, the Suns are – the level of implosion that they have gone to is amazing. So let's talk about this. We're three games into the season. The Suns play again tonight. What has happened in three games? And remember, the Suns are celebrating their 50th season in the NBA. Okay, so to celebrate that, the opening night – I was there. I got to see this live myself. Got to witness a 48-point shellacking that the uh, Portland Trailblazers, or really any other team that had been playing, did to the Suns. The Suns were lost. They were confused. They were playing one-on-one ball. They were just out for theirs. There was no flow to the offense. Then Portland started pulling away. Earl Watson didn't even bother to call timeouts. It's like, what in the world is going on? Then they followed that up with a with a kind of a a fun game in that they lose by two uh, to the Lakers. But really, the Lakers and the Suns are playing at a G League level. So uh, that wasn't a surprise. But then they come back and the Clippers play the Suns. And the Clippers beat them by 42. And that's when... The Suns pulled the plug on Earl Watson. He gone. And then Eric Bledsoe tweets, I want out of here or something. And the Suns are like, yep, you're gone. So the Sarver travesty, I didn't think it could go much lower. It's been a slow talent drain for over, you know, whatever, nine or ten years that he's owned the team. But, man, it is sinking to a new low. What do we even have? Do we have a GM that even understands how to manage anything? I mean, what are they going to do for a coach? What are they going to do to trade Bledsoe away and get some talent? If you had a mind and a plan behind it, you could build from this. There are some good building blocks to have, but I am not confident there's anyone in the organization at this point due to the brain drain over all the years that can possibly help these sons. And it starts from the top. Everyone says, why are we blaming Sarver? Well, we're blaming Sarver because a vision and a culture translates to action and results and success. 
And every smart, competent person that's ever been in the Suns organization has left or has been fired. And now we're at the point where people that aren't very talented are left, and they're being fired. There's like nothing left. Well, at a well, at a certain Phoenix Suns basketball. Yeah, at a certain point, you've got to stop looking at the personnel that are going through the carousel and start looking at the, you know, at the overall um, culture and at the dysfunction of the organization, because yeah. you can have and and you see this happen so many times where you will have really talented people in a dysfunctional situation, and that's not just sports. You know, you see it in corporate settings. You see it all over the place where people are not able to, to succeed or not able to help the organization, in this case the Suns, succeed because yep. there's just complete dysfunction. I mean, there's a reason it's called a team sport. It's, you know, you're not necessarily um, – if you have, like, a whole bunch of individuals all going in their own direction, pursuing their own agendas, they could be more talented collectively, and I'm not even saying that's the case for the Suns, than anybody they're playing against, but the whole key is playing together and you know being able to leverage the talents of people, and yep. and this is this is just all out war, you know, inward war. And yeah, you know, I I totally get the thinking that you know if a player is basically going to tweet out, I don't want to be part of this team, that the team's going to feel compelled to to try and make a stand, but there's a difference between a coach doing something like that on a team that is gaining cohesion and the coach just has to establish, you know, that he's in charge of the ship as opposed to having this happen when it's apparent that there's nobody at the helm of, at at the steering wheel uh, steering the ship. And that's, that, that's where it just looks like spite at that point. And it's just, and then you know, you you fire your coach three games into the season, it makes you look worse than the coach, quite frankly. Yep. You know, it, yep. it it makes you look like you don't know what you're doing. That that you could lose confidence in your coach. That and how do you get a team to buy into a process? Because we keep hearing that over and over with uh, teams that are in rebuilding years. You know, we hear that about seventy sixers. You know, trust the process. Trust the process. Yeah, and but honestly, with the Sixers, I do trust the process because it's working, well, it, and they have the Colangelo's advising. You know, Jerry offered Sarver to be an advisor, and Sarver's ego turned him down. The process is working in Philly. We've got the, quote-unquote, the timeline. Well, the timeline is not working. I give McDonough credit. He parlayed a hashtag into a contract extension. Good job, okay? <laughs> but that Sarver doesn't understand what's good and bad, so that's not good. And he's historically micromanaged, which is not good. And now we're at a point where maybe he's trying to let go, but he's got incompetence everywhere. And so when you let go and there's incompetence, it doesn't work so well. All right? Now, now what, what do we have left to look at? Well, what is the team going to do? What are the players on the court going to do? And forget about the record, the effort that the team shows tonight versus the Kings will be very telling in a good or bad way, right? And Jared Dudley hasn't played the first three games, but he's playing tonight. He tweeted out, hey, I'm playing tonight, and it's time to have some leadership. He's basically saying, I'll own this. I'm an NBA vet. I know how to win. I'll gather the guys around me we're going to play better tonight. So I'm very interested to see what could possibly shake out. But here's the bottom line. The bottom line to me is, and it's ironic, here we are, seven years without a playoff. The Suns organization in disarray. There is only one person on the planet that has benefited from all of this, and that is Robert Sarver. He bought the team for $400 million dollars, the street price of an NBA franchise is a billion dollars. He's made himself $600 million by sitting there and destroying a beloved franchise. Boo. Yeah, it's uh, – you can't really argue with any of the points you made. And that's where, you know, going back to the process and the trust factor – 
when you fire your coach three games into the season, basically what you're saying is there is no process. And you, you applaud, you know, one or two veterans stepping up and taking ownership and being a man, you know, and doing that. But you wonder, you, maybe that bravado can carry you for a few games or maybe a few weeks. But if you don't have a whole support system, there's a whole lot of people out there with a lot more resources you know, that are going to transcend just a couple guys saying, come on guys, let's, let's pull it together. And, you know, yeah. you might, you might, you might see a brief uptick, but until there's something that signifies a systemic change, and it's interesting because the criticisms here in the Phoenix Sun situation for years as a Washington, I mean, I've heard Washington Redskins fans say the same thing about Daniel Snyder and, you know, watching, you know, watching that franchise get micromanaged and, you know, have all sorts of problems. So, uh, you know, there's, there's something to this, this whole notion that, you know, if you have a, if you have a team out of vanity and you feel like you're the expert and you don't, I mean, I, I really think the key, the key word is humility, you know, um, you know, earlier today on KJZZ, when, they're having, they were actually having a conversation about the Phoenix Suns. You, you know that the sports story is big is when the local public radio station is actually having a whole segment about it. Uh, when, you know, and they never, they never cover sports, especially local sports. But a guy from KJZZ was uh, actually talking to a local you know, radio personality. And, uh, he, and he, he pointed out, like, all of the front office people and the head coach for you know, Golden State Warriors who were basically groomed with the Phoenix Suns, you know, from Steve Kerr, yep. the front office, all the way down, down the line. And, yep. you know, when you look at a guy like Steve Kerr, you know, one of the keys to his success is a certain level of humility, you know, which is, hey, you know, I don't know everything, but I'm going to surround myself with really good people. I'm going to take input. I'm going to coordinate. I'm going to do all this. And it, and it really takes a whole collective effort rather than just, you know, one person saying, I know the right answers. Yeah, so true. you got Rick Welts with the Warriors. You've got um, management at Cleveland. You've got Steve Kerr. You've got guys putting rings on and hanging banners, and it should have been in Phoenix, and it never was. You've I think, got, I think they uh, – uh, yeah. uh, go ahead. Uh, it's just we could probably spend the whole podcast listing them out. You got Mike D'Antoni thriving. You've got Brian and Jerry doing good things. And you know, the well, thing it, is Jerry Colangelo offered to be the advisor to Sarver, one of the greatest basketball management minds that we've ever seen. And he's like, No, I'm good. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's it's interesting too because when you look at the parade of people who've gone through the Suns organization, and and you know one of the uh, one of the cliches or one of the mantras when you're, you know, when you feel like you've been wronged or or you know you're you got fired from a job, it's like the the greatest revenge is is living a good life, and like Mike D'Antoni is you know a perfect example of that is. You know, let, let's see where uh, let's see where Earl Watson ends up with. You know, if he ends up going somewhere and having success, then that ends up being the ultimate revenge, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Sean, we are we are just at the point here, like, and you know it's bad. You know it's bad when Sports Illustrated and they published this. I believe it was today. Um. Sports Illustrated just straight up came out and said, hey, Robert Sarver, it's time to sell the sun. Yeah. Yeah. We're well, you know, I, I wonder if uh, I wonder if Charles Barkley can get a little uh, uh, coalition of people together and uh, come in and, and take it. You know, Sarver's ego is so big, the last thing he will ever do is sell the sun, especially when he's just making money sitting there well and that's that's where he's his his value goes up based on the work of other people in the league because that you know as the nba in general uh increases in attraction 
you know, you're always going to have people showing up to Suns games. That it'll become like the Cardinals games where you show up to see who the Suns are playing. Yeah, that's where we're at. Well, I feel I feel uh, somewhat reluctant to uh, to mention my San Antonio Spurs and how grateful I am for Greg Popovich and his. Uh, his keen mind and organizational structure, but I'll I'll leave that there to the side. Uh, <laughs> sorry. All right, let's move on. So there was some good news on the basketball front uh, this week, and uh, that came in the form of two, what I would consider two pieces of really good news. The first piece is that the FBI said, hey – you know, U of A, hey, all you colleges, and hey, NCAA, just pause your own investigations. You know, we're, we're going to need a year here to sort through the bombshell we dropped. So don't, don't review anything yet. So I think that's good because that gives a clear path for Arizona this season to go ahead and have their season, win the Pac-12, win the Pac-12 tournament, win the NCAA tournament, be the national champs, hang banners before any of this crap comes out. Now, it still seems like the only thing that went wrong was that um, Book Richardson took some money. Um, but it, it, it's definitely going to hurt Arizona long-term. They've already had two four- or five-star commits decommit just around this. They did have two guys come to the red and blue, Sharif O'Neal, Shaq's son, and, uh, and another guy, I'm spacing at the moment, they kind of reaffirmed their commitment. So I thought that was good. So the first piece of good news is FBI pushed things off. Arizona has a legitimate season to work from, so that's good. Second piece of good news is the red and blue scrimmage. Arizona's team is scary, scary good. They are so scary good. I, they, have, they are a matchup nightmare. All over the floor. This uh, this Aton could be yeah. the best player to ever put an Arizona jersey on. I don't. There is no one at the college level that can can deal with this guy. He has size, strength, speed, skill, and uh, I just hope they put him near the basket. He's got a great touch, outside shot. He's hitting threes. He was hitting mid-range jumpers, but in the college game, you put him near the rim and leave him there. And he's like a vacuum for all rebounds, and he'll just dunk on, over, through anyone in his path. He's almost like a Shaq at LSU. Like, I really think Arizona has something special here. And that's just one player. Arizona has three or four guys that are NBA-worthy on this roster. And probably for the fourth or fifth year in a row, Arizona, the Arizona Wildcats, have more NBA talent than anyone else in the state, including Sarver's Phoenix Sun. Yeah, no, I would I would agree with that. I think the uh, you know on the one on the one hand it is good that the FBI is saying hey hold off. The subtext to that is you know hold off on your investigation so we could potentially throw more of your people in into jail. Um, but if if we truly believe, and I, I still cling to this this hope and this belief that the Arizona part of this investigation, the damage is contained with just book Richardson and, you know, potentially, uh, you know, one, one recruit, potentially one current player. Um, I, I agree with you this season, at least, at least we Arizona fans and players and the community can enjoy the fruits of what, what should definitely be a very successful season. And then, you know, who knows what happens down the road. Um, I've, I've always thought this NCAA practice of retroactively, you know, stripping uh, schools of titles and wins and things like that is, is I don't know, it's kind of a bogus uh, type of thing because, yeah, it's an asterisk, but it, it's kind of like um, <laughs> the way it feels like is, okay, you let your kid have uh, have a whole bunch of birthday cake and the kid gets to experience all the joy of having the birthday cake. And then you go back after and say, okay, well, 
officially we're going to say you never had that birthday cake. <laughs> it, you know, it, it doesn't take away from the joy and the excitement and the achievement of what you've done. It, you know, so from that standpoint, I don't, I don't know that uh, there's, there's too much to worry about. And from the other part, you know, with the embarrassment of riches that Arizona has talent wise, I think the biggest key is just going to be how quickly can Arizona get into the groove and the, in essentially, you know, what you'd call the preseason, the non-conference season, to um, get all the pieces firing together in an optimal, optimal manner so that, you know, we don't have guys getting – and the great thing is they've been playing together for a while. They've, you know, they've gone uh, overseas. They've done that. So um, I, I fully expect that they're going to come out – you know, they're going to come out of the gate swinging – and they're going to be, you know, knocking things down, and they won't hopefully have to go through the kind of adjustment that most teams have to go through um, with that much talent on the court. I mean, now we're talking about, obviously, you know, Kentucky levels, North Carolina levels of, uh, you know, the, the good coaching has to be not, not how do I make something happen, but how do, I, how do I get guys out of each other's way so that they can make something happen? Preach it, Sean. <laughs> so yeah, I'm not I'm not really um I'm not really too worried about the prospect of we could go have a great season, win a national champion. I mean, obviously if if down the road the NCAA came back and said you don't have the national championship, that I mean that would be a a very big blow. But, you know, to a certain extent, you know, it it really kind of and I think to a certain extent it's going to be an even bigger motivator because a, you know, Sean Miller and the guys are going to have this huge chip on their shoulder. That's going to motivate them, which is the whole world is against us. You know, we're going to prove that we can stick together and nobody can pull us apart. Cause I'm sure right now it really does feel like, you know, them against the world. And then, you know, basically it's, I mean, I, I see all the pregame speeches already lined up, which is, Hey guys, we don't, I mean, you don't even have to talk about the investigations, but you say, hey, guys, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We can't control what's going to happen tomorrow. All we can do is enjoy the moment, carpe diem, go out, don't leave anything on the floor, you know, and there's that much motivation because the thinking has got to be we've got to do something now, you know, this year, and we've got to do it for keeps. Yeah. Yeah, I love the chip on the shoulder. I think it fits Miller's mentality i think it fits the players mentality um you're going to have a fire and a focus that's every game you know every arena they go into is going to be you know throwing the innuendo around when it comes to paid players and all that and that's fine i think it just fuels a focus and a fire um this is a yeah. team this is a team that can not only win it can dominate nine times out of ten and it's got well, enough grit and skill set to overcome the great games that they'll play against other great teams. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I want to do a little research and find out, you know, which company is the top company in creating uh, fake, uh, fake money because I'm sure they're going to be making a lot of sales from fans from other schools trying to go to the cliche route of, you know, tossing up fake money from the student section as a, <laughs> as a dig, you know? Yeah. So it's like, yeah. okay, you know, just if you're, if you're Sean Miller and the team, it's like, okay, just mentally get ready. I mean, uh, they, they get, they play in hostile situations so much anyway, but you know, just know that they're going to, especially, you know, the ASU student section is going to come up with some pretty creative uh, digs about paying players or, you know, uh, pay for play. And it's like you yeah. just got to take it and then let your let your talking happen on the court. Yeah, that's right. And really the thing is no one can understand. It doesn't make sense to them that Arizona basketball is as dominant as it is. And, you know, this easy way out that, oh, yeah, they must be paying for players. You know, that, that gives somebody some – logical explanation for why they're getting destroyed. So it's kind of like a little warm blanket they can put on and say, oh, yeah, it's okay that we're getting beat because they paid for players. Uh, that's fine. 
they they can think that all they want. Arizona's just going to hang banners and size up rings. One, it can it can give you a little bit of a mental edge because if you're playing an opponent who feels like, well, the deck the the deck has been stacked against me, you know, because yep. they've gone out and bought the players and they have a better team. I mean, in, in kind of a weird, twisted way, it almost works as an advantage for you. Sure, yeah, it gives everyone an easy out to just let us do our damage. Right, even though, you know, as far as we know right now, the at least the primary player that has been identified, you know, as being the pay-for-play is not, you know, not going to be an available resource, and there's potentially one more, but, you know, you can't really make a blanket statement um, unless you're going to subscribe to the fact or to the belief that, oh, Arizona's a dirty program through and through. And, you know, and the bottom line is that's why they do investigations. I I don't – I – it would be among, like, the top three things that I would not have seen coming if anything comes out that shows that Sean Miller knew about any of this or that – this goes any further than book Richardson or, you know, obviously we've got potentially another assistant coach, but that it is contained within kind of a rogue element within the program, which doesn't excuse, you know, Sean Miller from, from having his responsibility for oversight. And he said, you know, I take responsibility for that. So, you know, he has an opportunity to just demonstrate to, you know, his young men that he's, he's going to walk his talk. You know, he, he talks a lot about, you know, being upstanding, taking responsibility and, and doing those things. And I have a lot of confidence that he's going to do the same thing for the program. Yep. I, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good that Miller was not involved. And in, in fact, who knows? Let's see. Let's see how much he's been helping uh, investigation along the way when this is all said and done. Uh, I just don't see it. If, hey, if, if it comes out that he knew, then let's put it all out there. And uh, and we'll own that, and and we'll say, yep, you're right. But I highly doubt that's what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, I just can't see that happening. All right, so we covered the cat hoops. Uh, we covered the Suns debacle. Uh, I just tweeted out a link to that article uh, that, that where Sports Illustrated said, "Hey, Sarver, do do everyone in Phoenix a favor." and sell the team and make a billion dollars. All right, fine. Starver, take your money and run, bro. We just want to get this program back on its feet. Uh, we talked about the Cats football. they got the biggest game of the year coming up, homecoming against Washington State, 6.30 kickoff at Arizona Stadium in Tucson. And uh, that might do it. You know, the uh, the Phoenix Rising, they, they got deep into the – the uh, playoffs they lost, but they had a great, exciting season in their inaugural season. Um, well, and I love, Z-Bak, I love the, f- you know, well, just, <laughs> you know, great season. But uh, let's give it up. The Dodgers are having a historic season, and and uh, they look invincible. Hey, my my Astros. I'm rooting for my Astros, which, who I've rooted for growing up in Houston and Texas. So, I. Uh, I'm, I have hopes for an, an underdog win by my by my Strohs. I couldn't have imagined it. What, I had one year when I was in, in high school. I know this is Arizona Desert League, but I had high school in Corpus Christi, Texas, where and this is this is how popular I was at school. That I actually was able to uh, listen to every single Houston Astros game on the radio or watch it on TV and keep a scorebook for a, a whole year. That is how much of a social uh, magnet I was in high school. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But what's interesting is last podcast, we couldn't stop talking about the Cardinals and this podcast, we literally have forgotten about the Cardinals. Well, I mean, was it just, uh, oh yeah, (laughs) there's nothing to say. It's so tragic. Uh, it is. It is. Uh, they, no, at this we, point, they're just dismantled, you know. Yeah, thoughts go out to Carson Palmer and the Cardinals. It's uh, This is a team that has had a plan and has had good ownership and has developed talent and has taken care of their players. 
And uh, unlike the Suns, where they got where they deserve, I, the Cardinals aren't getting what they deserve here. I feel terrible for them. Well, I hate to see a fellow Fitz suffering, but looks like uh, Larry Fitzgerald's woes will continue without somebody to play ball with him. Yep. Yeah. Are there? I mean, are there any QBs out there they can pick up? I, probably not. Oh. Well, there's a there's a there's a little guy named uh, Colin Kaepernick who's better than <laughs> most of the guys starting in the. Uh, I I don't know uh, that. Uh, the Arizona Cardinals would necessarily have the the guts to uh, to hire him, but that could be that could be an exciting thing to do. Yeah, you got to do something. Yeah, uh, that would be an interesting that would be an interesting hire for sure. Well, I do um, I do have one correction now that we're getting here towards the end of the podcast, so I wanted to make sure that I uh, check myself before I wreck ourselves um i meant i mentioned that in the pac-12 south that with an asu victory over usc arizona victory over washington state it would put it would make a three-way tie that's actually incorrect because usc has played one more game uh they're four and one asu arizona are three and one so technically if it plays out, the state of Arizona wins out in NCAA Division One Pac-12 football this weekend. That would put Arizona State and Arizona tied for first in the Pac-12 South with USC a half a game behind. Well, if Arizona and, and ASU play each other, one of them is going to have a better record. Oh, yeah, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. I'm just saying that in terms of the standings in process after this weekend, we could potentially be looking at something that we never expected to see at the beginning of the year, especially after the first few games, which is the two Arizona schools tied atop the Southern Division with the mighty USC playing catch-up. <laughs> that would be interesting. Uh, the Pac-12 is wide open. I don't think there's a dominant team. I think the league is generally down compared to some of the other Power Five conferences. Uh, and for a scrappy, up-and-coming Arizona squad, uh, now is the time. You know, this this defense is pretty fun to watch, and there are a ton of freshmen playing. It's almost like we're in a... Uh, a gestation or an incubation phase with this defense, we're going to have a mighty strong defense for years uh, if they continue to develop what they've got started here this year. Yeah, I I agree. It's what's what's most interesting is our defense gives up some really big plays, but then they the difference from last year is they're also making really big plays. So. Yeah. You know, you just you just want to see. I just want to see something on the defensive side that's gonna, you know, really put a crimp in Washington State's passing attack. You know. Yeah. Well, there's going to be a lot of balls flying around, so hopefully they can hang. It's going to be a very very good game to watch. A lot of fun. Probably a lot of points. So to wrap up oh, the yeah. podcast, I think we need to do our predictions, John. Wow. Okay. Well, uh, what uh, what are you going to go with? I think there are going to be a lot of points scored. Um, I'm going to go with the assumption that Arizona has an answer for Washington State's defense and that they're going to score 48 points. I think mm. that Washington State He's going to be able to get theirs through the air. And so I'm going to go with 47 for Washington State. So 48 Arizona, 47. You're 48, 47? Yeah. So I'm going to go. Yeah. I'm going to go with. Uh, I'm going to go with 56 for Arizona. And uh, let's say 42 for Washington State. 
Mm, I love that. I hope that happens. That sounds a lot more stress-free and comfortable than my story. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I think, I think there's going to be another level with that. I fully expect now with the success that this should be a pretty wild, raucous crowd. We've got, you know, a ranked team coming in, essentially, uh, or or potentially, the uh, Pac-12 Southern Division lead is on the line with this game. So I think uh, I think. Arizona gets a touchdown just by virtue of the energy of the home crowd. Yeah. It will be the loudest it's been in, in that stadium for a few years. Especially because it is homecoming. So a homecoming uh, game will bolster, will bolster even a normally, you know, lackluster game. Um, this one, I mean, you already have the added benefit of everybody coming back for homecoming. And then on top of that, the implications of the game. So, yeah, I, I like. Uh, I, I'm very conservatively saying I like what I what I'm seeing. It's I just I always have that little ghost behind me that's like, oh, don't get too excited because the bottom's about to fall out, and I'm trying not to go there. <laughs> yeah. Well, to wrap it up, episode ten, we made it to double digits, Sean. Episode 10 of the Desert League. We've got our predictions. 48-47, Cats over Washington State versus 56-42, Cats over Washington State. We're homers on this podcast, but, hey, it's been working out for us this season. So let's keep the train (laughs) rolling, Wildcats. I know Sean and I will both be in the house in Arizona Stadium. Sean will be trying to keep up on all the stats, and I'll just be enjoying losing my voice. With the crowd. Yeah, well, so so your your job is to cheer loud enough to where you barely have a voice for next week's podcast. Sounds good. That's my goal. That's my goal. <laughs> and we'll need to uh, we'll need to make sure to have a pregame carne asada plate or carne seca plate uh, to get the uh, the right mojo going down there before the game. So, I'm, I'm I'm already blocking uh, blocking out my meat. Uh, my meat allotment and saving it up for Saturday. Yeah. I mean, carne seca rarely fails. So let's do it right. Okay. So for the Desert League, this is Ward Andrews in the North Bureau and Sean Fitzpatrick in the South Bureau. Have a great week. Let's hope the Suns can manage to find a way to win a game and bear down. Bear down. Bear down, Suns. <laughs>